the political conversation, the town hall, is on Twitter. And until that fully migrates to threads, it's going to be the secondary app and not the first use for people. It's where people go for news is Twitter. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, July 10th. Today on Media Monday, John Kelly and I discuss whether Twitter can be killed off by Threads, the buzzy new app that Mark Zuckerberg and Meta launched last week. It's a hot media story right now, but can Threads grow into a platform that's big enough and sticky enough to actually rival the addictive power of Twitter? John and I also talk about another once great platform now facing financial challenges as habits change, ESPN and the big round of layoffs that just coursed through Bristol. We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. If it's Monday, it must be Media Monday, which means I get to see my friend John Kelly's face on the Zoom. You guys can't see how handsome he looks as always. How you doing, buddy? There we go. I'm good, man, and I'm glad to see you're in the cabana room right now. I don't know what you've done wrong, but it sounds like you're uh, either you didn't get home from the club uh, until too late last night or too early this morning or um, focusing on your wallpaper game, but good to see you out there. (laughs) My wallpaper has been referenced by Tara on this podcast the people listening can't see it. I am recording this in our guest room because Katie's in the office doing the Lord's work at Mattel. And yeah, <laughs> there's some nice palm frond wallpaper we have in here. It's a good nap room too, FYI, for anyone who uh, enjoys a nap out there. Very, very bungalow eight circa uh, 2002. Uh, <laughs> older millennial listeners who are doing God knows what there and there. We have a lot of those. I would say our strike zone is probably old millennial Gen X. John, I want to talk to you today about a bunch of really big, big name layoffs that happened at ESPN last week. Dylan smartly mm-hmm. covered why that went down. But I want to use the first part of the podcast today to ask you about Threads, which is a big tech story. This is the Twitter competitor that Mark Zuckerberg launched. And within literally less than a day, they signed up 30 million users. It was pretty easy because Meta owns Threads. And if you are a pre-existing Instagram user, you sign up for threads with Instagram, you can port over all of your friends, it knows what you like, so I sign up for threads. I'm following some of my friends, but I'm also following the New York Times and the Cincinnati Reds and various things that I'm into. And it seems like a lot of media people are fascinated by this story. They're the ones jumping on, yet 30 million people is not insignificant. Any startup would love to have that many new users in one day. That's a crazy, crazy number. Elon Musk is cranky about this. He basically sent a letter to Mark Zuckerberg and their team accusing them of basically infringing on trade secrets and hiring staffers away from Twitter with the intent of copying Twitter. He's clearly threatened by it. 
Do you think, John, that Threads is a real threat to Twitter? You know, as you know, I am hardly the expert on uh, social media consumer behavior. I use Instagram to look at my friends' kids, and, and I'm on Twitter less and less. I hardly ever tweet myself. But a couple of things are interesting to me here. One is when Threads launched, I immediately thought back to a lunch I had with Noam Bardeen, who's the guy who started or operated Waze, uh, one of the founders, I believe, and is the founder of Post, which is the most recent Twitter competitor. And as you'd expect of an entrepreneur, was sort of salivating over the opportunity. And his business was the first in what has clearly been a sort of gusher of Twitter alternatives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thread, Blue Sky, Mastodon, I, I could go on. There are many others. And I think that they all see a couple of things going on. First of all, that the next generation of social media companies are going to be more disparate. It's going to be harder to have a um, a global town square or whatever the, the sort of phraseology that Jack Dorsey used to use during the Tahrir Square era. Mm -hmm. And that also, and that Twitter is terrible and, and increasingly made worse and worse under Musk's operation. And while it's not impossible that he may one day find a way to, to make this a profitable company, my hunch is that the timeline horizon for him to do that is totally a collinear with people's patience. Like, you know, mm -hmm. Twitter is getting worse and worse to use. I'm sure you feel that. I, I see it in my scanty usage. And so there's definitely room for a new competitor. And 30 million people is a lot. And I think the most encouraging detail, and, and sure that number may change by the time some people listen to this, was that it rose um, both incrementally and in a hockey stick sort of shape, meaning that there were 5 million people immediately downloaded it within the first hours. And then another five did hours later. So mm -hmm. there were like initial positive signals that something was happening there. Of course, the, the real story here is whether it's going to be sticky enough. Um, one of the other competitors that I forgot to name, of course, is, is Truth Social, which mm -hmm. I think has gotten the most scrutiny. And we realize through Truth just how hard it is to scale these platforms. But this does seem like at the outset... A rare recent product win for Meta, which uh, has been plagued from the portal and all these hardware failures that the Oculus, which I think Galloway refers to as like, you know, basically, you know, human birth control. And this seems like they, they got something right by copying another uh, platform, which is what they've done very directly in the past. They have. They copied stories from Snapchat back in the day. And I want to actually mention that in a moment because it's sort of relevant to Elon's legal threat here. But yeah, it does feel like you know, unlike a lot of product updates from the deeply uncool meta universe, a lot of elites and very online people were very quick to jump on. I think there's a couple interesting dynamics that I see. One is you have people in the media and then people on the left who are rooting for Elon Musk to fail. And so they're gleefully yeah. jumping on board Twitter, which is a funny look given, you know, they're rah-rah for Mark Zuckerberg all of a sudden after the many many, 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 many questions about Facebook's use of data and their ability to <laughs> police bad content, et cetera, et cetera. All the bad stories about Facebook we know very well. So that's happening. Two, I think you're right. Journalists, uh, the main people on, on Twitter, uh, I remember that Pew study from 2019 that said the most active Twitter users, about 10% of them, are responsible for creating 80% of yeah. all content on Twitter. Twitter is for journalists and political obsessives. And then the younger set, they use it for a lot of comedy and, and other things too. But most people, if they're on Twitter, are just reading and scanning Twitter and chuckling mm -hmm. and liking things. And I think a lot of people are, at least in our little political media universe, are using Twitter. And we're using Twitter even less, actually, I think before Elon took over. I think a lot of us 
some are just pure addicts and they're never going to leave. But I think a lot of us in the media that I notice are, have just been using it less and less and less either because they are starting to realize, like you, our editor-in-chief, that the real story is not on Twitter, that it's a time suck, that it's annoying, that it's not good for your mental health. And all of those things were true before Elon Musk took over. But I think it's accelerating in the Musk era. And so people are just sort of looking for something else to do. But man, like you have TikTok, you have Instagram, you have Facebook, you have Snap, you have YouTube. And that's in addition, those are all content and social media apps in addition to all the other apps on your phone. The problem that Threads is going to have to overcome is they're in this buzzy moment that reminds me of like Clubhouse when everyone was signing up for Clubhouse. It's Mm -hmm. so cool. Look what happened to Clubhouse. By the way, Twitter copied it and basically killed Clubhouse with Twitter spaces. But the problem they have is it's one more, not only one more app to look at, it's so similar to Twitter that I don't understand my daily use case. Do I post the same thing on Twitter and then the same thing on threads? Do I go on and follow the same people and follow the same people? Because like if I open TikTok, I can look at it for a minute, move on, look at Instagram for a minute, look at Snap for a minute, look at Twitter for a minute. Those are all fundamentally different use cases and kinds of content. But these are two just like streams of the same content. And it just feels like which one am I supposed to be looking at right now? And despite all this early heat, to use your term, I'm anxious to see how they make it sticky because it's still a little, I mean, Twitter's glitchy, but Threads is a little glitchy. And I'm just looking for the reason why it's better other than people hate Elon Musk. Yeah, sure. No, that plays a role. As we're talking, I'm looking at the two-page legal letter that Elon's lawyer, Quinn Emanuel, Alex Spiro, sent to, to Zuckerberg, which is obviously just bill-by-the-hour sort of bullshit. And Spiro uh, interests me greatly just as a character. I can only imagine what it must be like to be <laughs> Elon Musk's uh, l- lawyer of choice. But you made one comment that sticks out to me and I think is, is very relevant here, which is that Facebook made a subtle but significant decision to build threads off of Instagram. The the blue app, as they call it, is, I think, a lot more relevant outside of the United States than it is here for us. It's our sort of forebears or parents generation that probably still uses that. Obviously, it's a meaningful tool for business. Uh, Puck does business on Facebook mm-hmm. for customer acquisition. But the action for people our age and younger is on these video platforms like Instagram and Snapchat and and others. And it seems particularly relevant also from a, I don't want to say PR standpoint, but an imaging or positioning standpoint that Facebook's had a hard time, that Meta, excuse me, has had a hard time, its name alone indicates, building businesses in the last number of years off of Facebook, right? They've really uh, shied away for years from putting scaffolding on top of that because of the the toxicity, frankly, that you know that, that dates back to the sort of 2016 hijacked election and, and all that came from it, Francis Haugen, all, all that stuff. So all these other products have come elsewhere. The hardware products in particular had different names. The company renamed itself, yada, yada, yada. But it's very meaningful that they decided to create something new and spin it out of Instagram because I presume all their data suggests that that's where a lot of user activity is. And as we know from people, you know, as people who who use Instagram, the, the one knock on that platform is that you can't communicate in an exponential way right? You can write on somebody else's feed, you can post stories to your, you know, in your case, tens of millions of followers, but you you can't be, I guess, favorably ratioed is kind of the the term that I want to think of here, where, um, where you could say something hypothetically on Twitter, and all of a sudden, hundreds of millions of people say it, because they've all retweeted it, and it's been amplified. And that is a way of growing Instagram and giving threads an opportunity to connect with an audience that Facebook is not already seeing. 
Yeah, there's there's just some other problems I'd like to go through too with with you know cutting through the hype machine right now around this. One sort of related, Twitter's strength at the end of the day, it's not revenue, it's a, it's not DAU or MAU, it's just like the political conversation, the town hall, like you mentioned earlier, is on Twitter. And until that fully migrates to threads, it's going to be the secondary app and not the first use for people. That It's where people go for news is Twitter. And we'll see. I mean, I do think maybe there's going to be some normies out there who, and I'm sure they'll build some kind of bounce out in Instagram where you're like looking at an Instagram story and it's like, take me to threads. And then you spend like 10 minutes kind of scrolling threads. Like it doesn't have to be for insiders and news addicts, but that seems like where Zuckerberg wants to be competing because he doesn't need the money here. (laughs) The other thing that's interesting, I was texting with Sarah Fisher about this yesterday, my other favorite media reporter alongside Mm -hmm. Dylan. This is a simple thing, but a big thing. The logo itself isn't compelling. And so if you think about Snapchat's a very good example. This is sort of apocryphal, I think. But like Evan and Bobby, when they created Snapchat, they looked at the app store and they were like, there's not really a big like app that's colored yellow. Hmm. So they made the app yellow. Twitter's bright blue. Facebook's deep blue. TikTok has a logo. Instagram has a logo. These are like all logos and icons on your phone that have a grabby design or color. And Sarah pointed out too, she and lots of people I know actually organize their icons, Mm -hmm. this sounds kind of OCD, by color. Hmm. And if you look at the Threads app, it looks like 50 other black and white apps on my phone. It looks like Uber. It looks like a bunch of other apps. And so like if you're building a brand and you're trying to launch an app, it's got to be distinctive in every single way. And it's got to be burned into my eyeballs and I've got to be hooked Hmm. on it. And like the like black and white app, eh, it's not really working for me. So that's another Hmm. another, uh, knock against it. But The only other note I think worth pointing out, too, is this threat of a lawsuit is very interesting from Elon Musk to to Mark Zuckerberg. In his letter, Musk said that Twitter has serious concerns that Meta has engaged in systematic, willful and unlawful misappropriation of Twitter's trade secrets and other intellectual property. This is interesting because this comes from me working in, in the tech sector a bit. And I don't understand the full details. Eric Gardner would be much smarter on this than me. But Instagram copied Snapchat stories. Twitter copied Clubhouse. Just like cut and paste Clubhouse. Mm -hmm. And just jammed it onto the top of the app and created spaces. The reason a lot of these tech companies, I think, don't actually sue in these cases is because there's so many overlapping patents and code and just little products that Every tech company has quietly aped over the years from other people, from employees that move between the different companies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so you usually you see companies copying other products in tech all the time, but you don't see lawsuits. And I'm so so I'm interested to see whether this is just sort of brushed off by Meta, like, oh my God, go ahead and sue us. Like you can't. Yeah, we'll like, just we'll, toss we'll into the lawsuit for, like, bin with the, the other bottom. thing that you copied from Facebook like <laughs> ten years ago. Or if other sort of smaller companies end up like suing Twitter or Meta or whatever. It's like a, it's an interesting thing. There just really haven't been a lot of trade yeah. secrets or copyright infringement lawsuits that I've seen in the tech and social media universe. Well, normally these guys are all united by the fact that they're all sort of lobbying Congress with over 230 and other things that, that they actually have more in common than they do that mm-hmm. disunites them. And in the past, you know, when they were private companies a zillion years ago, there were so many investors who were in, in chummy with each other that nobody wanted to throw an ice pick at one or the other. So um, you, know, you can't help but laugh that Elon Musk fires 7,500 people and then uh, he goes after uh, a competitor for trade secrets. But either way, it's... 
it's very apparent to, to your previous point, two things, maybe this is a, a thought to, to leave us on, that none of these new Twitter antagonists has taken yet, right? So as much mm-hmm. as the, we're excited about, as you mentioned, the, the early success of this, no one's popped, maybe because, as you say, people still go to Twitter, maybe because we're all sort of satisfied with this short burst news. In fact, so much of media now is really like short burst in its own right. But I couldn't help think, as we were chatting before about this conversation, Twitter to me looks like what we're going to talk about next, which is ESPN vis-a-vis a kind of once fabulous, great thing that as it loses altitude, as it loses revenue, it has to cut its operating costs. And guess what? It just isn't going to be as great anymore. And mm-hmm. I have a lot of uh, pattern recognition for this as someone who started their career in the magazine industry. I wrote about this a bit in the backstory. You can see what happens in tandem when a company and or an entire sector becomes less and less investable. And it's manifested in the end product where you're seeing tweets from four days ago about news events that you already have seen recycled in and out of, um, of the culture. So this is so it goes, my friend. This is the way of the world. And before we go to break, I should definitely shout out Bill Cohan's latest reporting on all of the people that Elon Musk owes money to, <laughs> vendors, etc., and whether he might be like intentionally try- trying to drive the company into bankruptcy so we can get it back for pennies on the dollar. That's a theory, at least, percolating around Wall Street, so people go check that out on Puck. Uh, as John said, when we come back, we're going to talk about ESPN. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back, everybody, to The Powers That Be. It's Media Monday. And what bigger media company in the news last week than ESPN, uh, which announced that it's laying off a bunch of top-tier talent. Jeff Van Gundy, Jalen Rose, Susie Kolber, Ashley Brewer. I mean, a lot of people that if you still watch ESPN a lot, uh, and we all do on the weekends, maybe you don't watch SportsCenter like you used to, you're uh, you're pretty shocked. Steve Young. Like, these, these are big yeah. names that got laid off. Look, you know, we talk about TV news a lot at Puck. Dylan covers the shit out of it. We talk about it a lot here. 
when you're trying to cut costs, <laughs> you know, some big talent contracts uh, are usually the first place to start. And it's clear that ESPN has tons and tons of those. But I don't know. I was shocked. I mean, like, I watched a lot of NBA this year. And I, I don't know if Jalen Rose is, like, the greatest NBA talent in the world. But, you know, he seems like he's been part of the NBA on ESPN family for a very long time. I was surprised by some of these. Were you? Well, it definitely hit us in our our audience, I'm sure, of, of old Lenials and, and Xers <laughs> yeah. pretty hard. I mean, these are our guys, man. I remember when Susie Colbert debuted ESPN2. You know, Jeff Van Gundy was the Knicks coach when I was in high school, and Jalen Rose was the guy we grew up with in the Fab Five, Max Kellerman. Uh, yeah, I watched boxing with Max boxing, Kellerman and yeah. my dad all the time. Keyshawn Johnson, like, right. Todd McShay's been, like, David Pollock, yeah, like those dudes have been in college football for a while. Like again, like you said, we don't like sit down and like watch Sports Center while we're like eating cereal in the morning, like we did when we were little. But we do watch it on the weekends and at night when these big games are on. And I was just, I was taken aback a little bit. Yeah, I think that they handled it pretty artfully. And if you looked at the the public messaging, they made clear this is painful. They did a very good job of largely letting go of people who had been professional athletes and mm. have oodles of money. I mean, Jalen Rose, uh, you know, made over $100 million in his career. Steve Young did very well and, you know, now works uh, in private equity uh, out in, in Salt Lake or Provo. You know, I thought Jeff Gunny was fabulous. I, I can't believe that they let him go. But, you know, this signals a couple things that, you know, there's no nice way to put it. ESPN is, is going the way of CNN, where it can only afford to hold on to certain signature talents. And, you know, it has its Anderson Coopers of the world that are, the, unfortunately, the Pat McAfee's and the Van Pelt's. Uh, and we've seen some generational churning there, right? But in the old days, they used to be able to just kick the Tom Jacksons and Chris Bermans to, like, <laughs> ESPN plus, 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 you know, ESPNU, Deportes, plus, minus. Um, and they were still on the payroll. Now these guys are out of the building. And here's why it all makes sense, tragically, right? ESPN, as recently as 2020, was making about $7.5 billion in affiliate revenue alone. So that means there are about 80-some million households paying about 7 or 8 bucks a month for the right to watch ESPN or not. You know, it's astonishing. It was, you, you know, ESPN, because it was so valuable and because it was the sports product, could fight its way into every single bundle and could charge a premium because you couldn't possibly compete if you were Xfinity or... Bright House, whatever it was then, Optimum, all these cable operators, which are probably the, the second most unloved companies in our culture after you know after Twitter at, at this point. And they could charge, ESPN could charge if they wanted. So it was this extraordinary business where they made 99% of their revenue off of the 1% of the audience that was basically watching. I exaggerate, but that's the point. Mm -hmm. and, and they made another couple billion dollars off of live sports rights. Uh, pardon me, off of the advertising that they largely sold against live sports rights and flagships like SportsCenter. Decline of the linear bundle, which they all saw coming, accelerated in recent years and the drop off as you go from 80 million homes to you know 40 million in a couple of years is just going to be tragic and these are long term mm -hmm. rights they have to bid on so ESPN has a lot of fixed costs you know these deals mm -hmm. with the NFL and the SEC these last years and years and years so a number of the commentators they become collateral damage in this transformation and Matt actually had a um this is a sort of interesting sign of our times. Matt had a piece last week about how Netflix outbid ESPN for that multi-part doc about Jerry Jones and the rise of the Cowboys in the early 90s. And you can't help but read that and think, oh, my God, 
ESPN's not even competing with Netflix over its own bread and butter now. You know, it has competition from every conceivable side. You wonder at one point this becomes too much for Disney to to deal with. They're they're probably going to send it out on its own as a an over the top product. At what point do they possibly mm-hmm. spin it off? I mean, you can. I think everything's on the table here. Uh, it's funny when these layoffs popped the other day. I I have um those guys have all the fun the the book yeah, by yeah, yeah sure James Andrew Miller and Tom Shales the oral history of ESPN just been sitting on my bookshelf forever I don't know why I haven't read it because I'm such a sports junkie and a media junkie I finally picked it up read like the first like seventy five pages that place started out by the way the Bill and Scott Rasmussen the Republican pundit and pollster Scott Rasmussen <laughs> founded the thing with money from Getty Oil. Yep. Getty had this uh, non-oil fund that they made investments in and they put the money up for ESPN. But their starting idea, the little kernel uh, of what they were going to bring to, at the time, a few million households via a satellite uplink was just all the college sports games. So maybe they'll just like, you know, retrench one day and just be a place where you can watch Weber State play Utah State in college basketball <laughs> or watch <laughs> college volleyball or lacrosse or whatever. Because, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, some, maybe those are going to be the only things they can afford. And then, you know, that and uh, what's the uh, what's the thing they show during the summertime when like even baseball isn't on? Uh, pickleball. The Cornell tournament. <laughs> Cornell and pickleball. Oh <laughs> the, the Joey Chestnut. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it is um, – this, these layoffs, obviously, as they did for you, they, they just made me nostalgic, right? To a time when yeah, SportsCenter yeah. and ESPN was just bigger than life. Like, I'm citing late stage revenue figures. I mean, can you oh, just, God, the the mounting 90s and 2000s. And, and I feel like I've personalized this to some level because when I was going through the pangs of the demise of the magazine industry, I remember looking at ESPN thinking there's been no greater, more fortified, moat-filled business in, in media history than this thing. And But we're all vulnerable. And you know who deserves a little credit in my mind as, you, as we see this all play out? It's none other than actually Ari Emanuel, who saw mm-hmm. before anyone the hidden value in these, I'll call them subprime sports leagues, like bull riding mm-hmm. and, you know, what professional makeup application or whatever. And like, these were going to be products that media companies needed to differentiate and bring in audience clusters. Mm-hmm. And ESPN has set the bar so high with the best college football and the finals and, and Sunday night baseball that it's going to be really interesting to see in the future. What do they say goodbye to? You know, Apple is laying a claim to baseball as these regional sports networks fall apart. Will they just hoover it all up the way they have the MLS? Seems very possible to me. The NFL is making clear that it wants to diversify its media partnerships. The NBA is probably going to add an extra partner this year in addition to the Disney partnership and and Turner. And ESPN will still continue by having a meaningful piece of the pie. But like so many media businesses from that era, just going to be a smaller pie. I need to tune into Simmons uh, this week and see what he has to say about this. Uh, One of (laughs) the Mr. I told you so about ESPN. Also, I assume the uh, there's some schadenfreude going on at Barstool Sports right now, too. John, I will see you in the Slack this week, buddy. Thanks for joining me. See you soon, pal. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow.
This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.